the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report Number 76, December 1971 A few years ago, a writer described the modern American order as, quote, the warfare state, unquote. His argument was a faulty one, but his term was a very apt one. The age of the state has led inescapably to the warfare state. An important and central aspect of the life of the state has been war. Now, St. James makes clear in his epistle 4, verses 1 through 3, that the source of conflict and war is in the heart of man. It is a product of his sin, and he cannot therefore blame war on the capitalist, a military-industrial complex, other nations, the communist, or anything else. The basic and essential cause of war is the sin of man. This does not rule out secondary causes. It does make it morally necessary to avoid giving primacy to secondary causes. For then we absolutize circumstances over man and man's freedom and responsibility. We must also hold that the secondary cause always rests in the primary cause, sin. A theorist of the last century said that war is the continuation and extension of diplomacy into military action. A state is continually seeking its advantage by one means or another, so that diplomacy and war are alike instruments to a continuing evil. The fact of warfare gained prestige when Darwin set forth his theory of evolution. The struggle for survival was widely assumed to mean warfare in one form or another, economic and class warfare, warfare for the resources, warfare in every area. When Darwin published his Origin of Species on November 24, 1859, a waiting world was delighted with his thesis and the entire edition sold out on the day of publication. Two of the happiest of the earliest readers were Marx and Engels, who rightly saw in Darwin the confirmation of their beliefs. They correctly held that Darwin's success would ensure the triumph of socialism. The reason is an obvious one. If evolution rather than creation by God is true, then two things follow. First, life is a struggle for survival, and a theory of class warfare is simply a sociological application of evolution. And second, if God is eliminated, nothing morally binding remains to ensure private property, Christian marriage and religious authority in any realm. Life is then an amoral struggle for survival, 
and in that amoral struggle, mass man has the best chances for victory, supposedly. The age of the state already firmly geared to warfare as an instrument of politics, thus turned warfare with Darwin and Marx into the holy crusade of humanism on its march to utopia. Much is said about, quote, holy wars, unquote, in past history, and most of it is nonsense. The true holy wars in the fullest sense of the word are after Darwin and Marx. World Wars I and II were holy crusades, quote, to make the world safe for democracy, unquote, and to, quote, end war and assure peace, unquote, and so on. The terminology of communist warfare is the most intense example of holy warfare in all of history. Since accepting the necessity of struggle for survival, our humanism of today has in it the grounds for the holy war of our evolutionary faith. The established humanistic religion of modern states sees conflict as always the means of progress. Every struggle against a reactionary, racist, or fascist enemy is by definition an act of faith and a step towards peace and freedom. The evil is war by the enemies of a particular socialist state or by any who oppose the religion of statism. Thus, despite all the pious bleedings about a love of peace, ours is an age of warfare and of holy wars. These wars serve two purposes. First, a war always consolidates greater power over the citizenry in the hands of the state so that a victorious state emerges not only victorious over its enemies, but over its people as well. Thus, whatever losses the Germans, Japanese, North Koreans, and Viet Cong or North Vietnamese may have suffered at American hands, this much is certain, that since 1917, the major and consistent losers have been the American people. By their sinful propensity for the cult of the state, they have seen their freedom diminished, and economic slavery emerge. The state has been the consistent winner. A huge bureaucracy has developed in Washington and in every city and state. From a standing army of a few thousand, we now have an army of millions from almost inconsequential taxes. The citizens now pay taxes which are almost equal to a rent on their property and a permit to live. Second, Warfare is more and more a way of life and a basic philosophy of progress. The result is class warfare. How does labor see progress for itself? The answer is clearly by means of warfare, war against management and against the consumer. It is unthinkable for labor negotiators to assume that anything but conflict can assure progress and benefits for the working man. As a result, Labor is committed by virtue of its religious faith in the evolutionary humanism of our day to a warfare philosophy. This is no less true of capital. Very early in men like Carnegie, industry committed itself to social Darwinism, and the result was a growing breach between capital and labor. In this grim warfare, having a religion of conflict, concession is sin and even elementary decencies must be fought for by both sides, since both maintain a hostility to concessions. There have been notable exceptions on both sides, but basically the philosophy of warfare governs them. We have thus in every area a warfare state. 
In all this, of course, the state is the gainer. Warfare works to the disadvantage of industry and labor. It is destructive of the economy and of society, since progress rests on a harmony of interest. For the state, however, progress and its march to power rest on warfare, which greatly increases its power. The greater the hostility between capital and labor, the more both will turn to the state for an ally, so that the real victor in all cases is the state, which gains steadily in its power over both capital and labor. The state emerges as the victor, and capital and labor as the chained and controlled servants of the state. The state thus has an advantage in promoting class warfare, and statism inevitably promotes it, because its interference furthers conflict. Progress in race relations in America was real, until statist legislation turned it into class warfare and riots in the streets. Neither blacks nor whites have been the gainers, but the state's powers over both and over labor and industry are greatly increased. But the state cannot profit by its victories. When the state steps beyond its God-appointed realm as the ministry of justice, the state begins to fail in its ability to function effectively. The state is not a producer. For the state to gain vast powers over society, it is about as fruitful of good as for a mule to gain power over a corral full of mares. It is a sterile victory which can only embarrass the victor. The result is even greater tension and conflict. The greatest powers for the state are just ahead of us, and its greatest defeats, its inability to keep its promises and a consequent disillusionment of peoples. Already, everywhere, the state is failing in its ability to maintain an elementary and basic need of the people, security in their homes and safety in the streets. Failure here will only increase in the days ahead. Already a sum equal to 50% of all federal, state, county, and local police cost is spent for varying forms of private protection, and this sum will only increase. As controls over the police increase and public morality declines, lawlessness will become more open and extensive. The more power and money an individual or an enterprise gains, the more effectively it functions, because normally people and businesses have a productive function which thrives on further capitalization. However, this is not true of the state. The more power and money a state gains, the less effectively it functions, because it feeds on power and money, not to function in terms of a productive end, but to enhance its power and wealth. Power and money give muscles to men, businesses, and organizations, but they feed a cancer in the state. The modern state is thus a sick enterprise which resents health in its midst and penalizes it. It grows in wealth, but regards wealth and others as an evil. Its senators vote for busing for the masses and send their own children to private schools to avoid busing. The state has a double standard of morality one for itself and another for the people. A deepening disillusionment with the state is ahead of us and a growing decline in its authority. However, because the warfare state rests firmly on the foundation of the warfaring man, disillusionment will not change the world. As long as men believe, after Darwin and Marx, 
in a warfare world as the way for progress, they will create and perpetuate a warfare state. A man spent some time recently telling me how bad socialism, controls, and statism generally are. Then he concluded his random remarks by saying, quote, Well, it's a dog-eat-dog world, unquote. His perspective ensures precisely the kind of world he has. It is not a dog-eat-dog world. It is God's world, and His law prevails. All who violate it will sooner or later suffer the consequences. Those who insist that it is a dog-eat-dog world are debasing life, the world, and themselves, and they are the losers. To live on the foundation that is God's world may not give us as many bones as this man has, but instead of a dog's life, we have a rich life under God. Jesus Christ is declared to be, quote, the Prince of Peace, unquote, Isaiah 9, 6. But this does not mean surrender. He came to bring a sword, Matthew 10, 25, F, of moral division in terms of himself and his law word, but an offer of peace to all men of all classes. His peace is more than a cessation of warfare. It is a way of life and a relationship to himself. Progress is not through a struggle for survival or warfare, but by means of obedience to his law word and its application to every sphere of life. The warfare state sees progress through the destruction of its enemies or their subjection to the state. It sees conflict as the essence of progress. The biblical perspective is radically different. There is no progress unless there is, first of all, regeneration, a change of heart, life, and nature through Jesus Christ, and then obedience to His law word. Men may hope for peace through other means, but they will instead feed the forces of war. Conflict, instead of being a force for progress, is an aspect of man's fall and a product of his sin. It is unfortunately sometimes necessary in a fallen world, but it is not the norm, nor is it the means of progress. Sometimes good very definitely does come out of conflict, and sometimes conflict is morally necessary, but this still does not mean that conflict is the way to progress. A man who lost his sight in an accident was led, step by step, to a forsaking of a reprobate way of life and to a useful and godly existence. This does not mean that we should all blind ourselves in order to make progress. Neither the source of change nor the thing changed or in the environment or in accidents, but in the relationship of God and man. Man's basic war is with God and God's law order, and man's true peace begins with peace with God. In all of this, the state is futile. To hope for political salvation is like hoping for a cult from a mule. The state will change when men change. The warfare state will give way to a godly state when men are godly men, not the warfaring men St. James described in James 4, 1-3. Meanwhile, the age of the state is what we deserve. In fact, it is better than this generation deserves. Calcine Report number 77, January 1972. According to Scripture, the state is the ministry of justice, whose duty it is to administer God's law as, quote, the minister of God, unquote, in its realm. Romans 13, 1 through 4. The church is the ministry of grace, 
and the state the ministry of justice, each in its appointed realm to serve God. Only by such a service can society flourish and prosper. Much of the struggle between church and state in the medieval era was a dispute over priority. Was the emperor or the pope God's chief minister? Pope Gregory VII, in his letter to the Bishop of Metz, 1081, referring to his struggle with Emperor Henry IV, spoke of, quote, kings and emperors who, too much puffed up by worldly glory, rule not for God, but for themselves, unquote. The point was well made, but it was all too often a valid charge against both church and state, that their concern for power and priority supplanted the proper administration of their ministry. In the modern era, this old battle was supposedly bypassed and a new order instituted by the progressive separation of church and state. Both church and state were now supposedly free to pursue their respective callings without interference and with greater faithfulness. The result has been, within the state, a graceless law, and within the church, a lawless grace, pietism, and antinomianism. The state, however, has become intensely concerned with justice, now usually termed social justice. Rarely in history has the state expressed more concern with human welfare, with problems of health, education, and welfare, war and peace, environment and ecology, science and research, as well as agriculture and a variety of other spheres of interest. The state, in effect, has embarked on a zealous search for justice in every realm of life. Minority groups have been systematically studied and courted and their claims to justice strongly championed by state after state. All over the world, the modern states justify their existence by their zealous quest for social justice. Old wrongs and injustices are to be righted, human brotherhood instituted, and a reign of world peace ensured. It was believed that the 20th century was to see many of these goals realized. Instead, it has seen the progressive disintegration of world order and a growing resentment against the state. The effort has been a notable one, but the results have been disastrous. It is important to understand why. Perhaps an illustration from two countries may help us to understand the problem. The Tsarist order of old Russia had more than a little popular hostility to the Jews and some legal discrimination. Many Jews left Russia for that reason, and a few of the healthier American Jews helped finance Russian revolutionary parties in order to bring in justice. The results are now even less satisfactory, and the freedom of Soviet Jews is greatly reduced, so that the Tsarist days seem like a dream of freedom by comparison. Various Jewish groups all over the world demand freedom for Soviet Jews and insist that they are the targets of discrimination and repression. The Soviet Union very indignantly denies these charges and affirms that its order is without prejudice and is indeed dedicated to brotherhood. The Soviet Union is in fact an empire of many minority groups. It must avoid a charge of discrimination and favoritism, lest it be a target of a dreaded revolutionary liberation movement. Earlier in its history, the Soviet Union faced a charge within the country of favoritism to the Jews. How has the present problem developed? The problem has arisen out of the attempt to avoid all favoritism and discrimination. 
The Soviet hierarchy is well aware of the deeply rooted prejudices which divide its many racial groups. See Paul Lindvi, Anti-Semitism Without Jews, Communist Eastern Europe, Garden City, New York, Doubleday, 1971. To maintain its power, it must keep peace internally. As a result, to maintain justice and equal representation, it has instituted a quota system. The various graduate schools and professions must maintain a fair balance of all groups so that equal representation and justice prevail. The result has been instant injustice. Some of the minority groups, such as the Jews, normally have a high percentage in higher education and the professions, whereas some of the backward peoples of Central Asia have a very low representation. If the two are put on the same basis of representation, the result is a discrimination in favor of the backward group and against the advanced group. Moreover, the state receives a civil servant of lesser caliber. Thus, the steps taken to eliminate discrimination have given Russia its most repressive order in history. Let us turn to the United States for a similar development. There was a time when some medical schools limited the number of Jews who were accepted for admission. This was discrimination clearly. All the same, the percentage of Jewish doctors was quite high in ratio to the population, as was the percentage of Italian and Jewish musicians, and so on. Certain minority groups did gravitate to certain professions and sometimes dominated them. Steps are now being taken to, quote, correct, unquote, this situation. Medical schools must now accept a percentage of Negro students equivalent to the Negro population. This means, however, that the number of Jewish, German, Anglo-Saxon, and other students who can enter medical school is proportionately reduced. If we continue to try to correct, unquote, the situation by applying the quota system across the boards, we will very quickly lower, as we have begun to do, the caliber of medical education by introducing an alien factor. Instead of ability, race will govern. Apply the matter to every field and the injustices increase. If opera must have an equal representation in the pit and on stage of all races and Italian eminence broken, then opera ceases to be a musical feast and becomes an arena of racial tension. Such a policy will only increase racial hostility and aggravate existing problems. It will also mean that positions which should be granted in terms of merit are instead granted in terms of race. Every society already has its inner workings which favor some against others. Very often, getting a job depends on knowing the right people. Such favoritism is inescapable in any society, but in a free society there is always room for ability to assert itself and advance in spite of such problems. In a quota system, besides having more scope for, quote, pull, unquote, with insiders, those of lesser abilities are consistently favored in order to equalize the situation. The state's concern with social justice has thus led to systematic and planned injustice. Why? The framework of reference in social justice is man, not God. The attempt to gain social justice is humanistic to the core, and it lacks an objective frame of reference as its standard. The matter has been very powerfully summed up by the historian John Lukacs 
The Passing of the Modern Age, New York, Harper and Row, 1970, who writes, quote, Our world has come to the edge of disaster precisely because of its preoccupation with justice indeed, often at the expense of truth. It is arguable, reasonably arguable, that there is less injustice in this world than a century ago. Only a vile idiot would argue that there is less untruth. We are threatened not by the absence of justice. We are threatened by the fantastic prevalence of untruth. Our main task ought to be the reduction of untruth, first of all, a task which should have been congenial to intellectuals who, however, failed in this even more than the worst of corrupt clerics. Of justice and truth, the second is of the higher order. Truth responds to a deeper human need than does justice. A man can live with injustice a long time, indeed. That is the human condition. But he cannot long live with untruth. The pursuit of justice can be a terrible thing. It can lay the world to waste, which is perhaps the deepest predicament of American history. Unquote. Page 166. In a chapter on, quote, truth and liberty, unquote, in my study of the politics of guilt and pity, I showed how truth has been denied by our courts in favor of liberty and justice. Justice Douglas has declared that, quote, Truth is not the goal, for in most areas no one knows what truth is, unquote. To search for truth is to construct, quote, totalitarianism, unquote, according to Douglas, by imposing a right and wrong on society when the duty of men, quote, is not to discover truth, but to accommodate conflicting views of truth and the common good or conflicting needs. Unquote. By abandoning truth, men have thus also abandoned justice, and the quote, justice unquote, of the courts today is becoming steadily a new form of injustice. Truth and justice are indivisible, although different, and their separation has led to an age of status tyranny and injustice. Under the guise of a separation of church and state, what has actually taken place is a separation of Christianity and the state, and one might add a separation of Christianity and the church. The state is inescapably a religious establishment because justice, law, and social order are inescapably religious questions. What the modern state has done is to de-establish Christianity as well as the church and to establish humanism as its religion. The speeches of heads of states and the decisions of modern courts are exercises and proclamations of the religion of humanism. In this religion, there is no truth beyond man. Truth is thus relative to man and is not an objective, absolute, and transcendent order created by God's eternal decree. Where truth disappears, justice soon disappears also. China was a most progressive and advanced civilization as was India, until relativistic and pragmatic philosophies commanded the minds of people. Then, instead of advance, stagnation set in, because truth, having lost its meaning, justice and life also declined in meaning. This same decay is now infecting Western cultures. The impact of this downgrading or bypassing of truth is apparent in many areas. In the church, it has led to an emphasis on unity above truth 
in the ecumenical movement. The early councils of the church, Nicaea, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople, emphasized truth and waged war against heresies, holding that the only ground of unity is the truth of God. In the ecumenical movement today, unity has priority, and truth is bypassed or neglected. In fact, this emphasis on unity has gone so far that unity is popularly equated with grace, and nothing is more frequently used as a modern anathema than to pronounce a movement as, quote, divisive, unquote, and potentially or actually, quote, schismatic, unquote. To oppose unity for unity's sake is regarded as being opposed to grace. In the realm of the so-called social sciences and of education, the perspective of Comte prevails. Meaning is derided, and the concern for truth is declared to be a mark of a more primitive society, whereas modern scientific man concerns himself not with meaning, but with methodology and technology. The neglect of truth has led to the progressive destruction of the church as a power in society and to the decay of education. This neglect of truth is now destroying the life of the state and reducing it to a naked and empty display of force against which its own youth rebels. Even more, the neglect of truth has led to the erosion of the individual's strength to resist the growing tyranny of the state. Man is never more defenseless than when he is without the truth. Modern man is especially vulnerable because he is a man without truth and even more a man denying the possibility of truth. Impotence is thus deeply embedded in his will and present in his every act. As against this prevailing darkness, the light of Scripture reveals the incarnation of truth in the person of Jesus Christ. The truth of God, His absolute law, decree, and person is unchanged and unchanging. Men are judged by that truth. Quote, Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Unquote. Luke twenty eighteen. The truth is either our foundation, the rock on which we build, or it is our destruction, grinding us to powder. The days of the age of the state are thus numbered. Its temples of humanism, its schools are regularly being bombed and burned by its own sons. Its chief officers are despised and regarded with contempt. Even as the state increases its power, it also increases disrespect and disobedience. Wise men will spend little time weeping over the past. They prepare for the future. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his pain, the very prize. It was there.
his name and hear our sovereign King. Praise his name and go the way that he will show and follow the road leading us home. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.